You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Welcome. Good morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've not met before, let me welcome you. Say it's great to have you with us. Um, We are in the middle of a a series on Habakkuk, and today we're going to talk about um, a bit about justice. Today we're going to talk about uh, the judgment of the Chaldeans, which most of us did wake up thinking about that and have wrestled with that all week long. Um, It fills your social media feeds, and um, but it's actually very relevant in the course of this book. Let me explain why it's so relevant. It's super relevant in the book of Habakkuk, and ultimately it's relevant for all of us. Um, It's relevant for all of us to consider the justice of God. So we're going to talk about uh, God's good justice, uh, and we're going to look at Habakkuk chapter 2, page 458. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the seat in front of you, and that's where you will find it. And a number of you have been texting in questions to us, because as we talk about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, it'll come up again today. Uh, As we talk about issues like judgment and justice, there are always questions. So if you have questions about that, if you would text them into that number, then we'll do our best to respond to those on the weekly podcast. We have a conversational podcast, we have a sermon podcast, but we also have a conversations podcast uh, that comes out on Wednesday mornings uh, that we record trying to respond to uh, things from the sermon and other things in the life of the church. So uh, you can text in a question, like I said, we will do our best. So uh, let me review what's going on so far. Habakkuk is a prophet. He lives at the uh, latter part of the 6th century BC, and he is raising complaints with God. And, And he essentially has two primary complaints that he raises with the Lord at the very beginning of this book, Habakkuk. And the the first complaint he raises with the Lord is, Lord, how long will I have to keep crying out for you to intervene? The people of Judah, where he lives, the southern kingdom of Israel, the people of Judah have fallen away from God. They are not following God's law, and uh, they are... um, they're harming one another, oppressing one another, uh, physically violent towards one another. And so he says, how long are you going to wait before you intervene? And why do you just sit and watch and make me watch all of this? It's very strong uh, out of the gates comments to the Lord. And the Lord answers them, gives an answer to his question and says, well, I am going to do something and I am doing something. I am raising up the Chaldeans who are the people of Babylon and I'm raising up this vile um, uh, sort of violent, aggressive, arrogant people uh, who are going to come and um, destroy your city and take you captive. And that's what I am doing. They're going to bring judgment so that ultimately you will return to me. So that's the first complaint. The second complaint that he raises is how can you, God, use people that are worse than us? We may be bad, they're worse. How, and there's a lot of description of how bad they are, and we're going to see that again today. How can you use someone worse than we are to harm us and somehow call that good? How can you do that, Lord? And God is going to answer that question in the passage that we are going to look at today. So it doesn't seem right that uh, God would do that. 
But what we're going to see in this passage, and as we review a few earlier passages, is that God is going to uphold this reality. The Chaldeans are guilty for what they are going to do. They've already done things that are bad. But when they come at some point and attack Jerusalem and cart God's people off into exile, when they do that, they will be guilty for their sin. And this is the key to this chapter. They will face God's judgment. They will be guilty, they will face God's judgment. So the question then is, how is that fair? Because the, the, chap, the book has already said in chapter 1, verse 6, for instance, that God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. So how are they guilty for something that God is doing? I will raise up the Chaldeans. He says in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, O Lord, you have uh, ordained them as judgment. So God has appointed, he has ordained, he has purposed for them to bring judgment uh, onto the people of God. So is there a sense in which if God is doing that, how are they responsible? Well, what we see when we read a passage, when we read Habakkuk and the passage today and combine all of these together, what we see is they are responsible for what they are doing. They really do want to take over nations. They really do want to plunder people. They really do want to grow uh, in their expansion and their power and their destruction. God doesn't put evil in their heart. They weren't over here enjoying a nice Sunday school lesson and having a group hug, and all of a sudden God comes in and says, I want you to go attack people and be mean. No, that they're, they're fulfilling who they are. So they really want to do what they are doing, but at the same time, God is sovereign over them, and he is raising them up to do what they want to do. What they want to do and what God wants to do, uh, well, they flow together. Sometimes... Um, Theologians call that confluence, a flowing together of the will of man and the will of God. And that is what is happening here. God is using them, and uh, God is choosing that they do this and appointing them to do this, and yet they really want to do this. So it is, they're both true at the same time. So the chapter shows that God will judge the Chaldeans. And it's relevant for all of us. Here's the point of relevance for all of us is when we read this passage, we see that the root problem for the Chaldeans is the root problem for everybody. And that is they want to live independent from God and they trust their own strength before God. They are self-sustaining. They are self-sufficient. And God condemns everyone who trusts in themselves and does not trust in him. Verse 4 of chapter 2, we looked at this last week. The righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous person is the one who sees his need for God or her need for God and trusts in the righteousness that God provides. That's what we saw in the New Testament. Paul takes this very verse, the righteous shall live by his faith, in the New Testament, adds some context and application and interpretation to it and shows us that the righteousness that God provides of us is the right, uh, requires of us is the righteousness he provides for us. And it's by faith looking outside of ourselves, trusting outside of ourselves that we are made right with God. So everyone will, will be judged, not just the Chaldeans. Are we standing on our own like the Chaldeans apart from God, or are we dependent on God and trusting him? So the Chaldeans simply exemplify this in the extreme. They exemplify self-sufficiency in the extreme. They celebrate themselves. They worship their own power. 
That's what we saw in chapter 1. They actually worship, glorify themselves, and glorify their own power. And so the passage which I keep referring to that we're about to read, the passage really shows that while the Chaldeans think they are invincible, no one can stop us, they are a world power, what they don't know is that God has raised them up, and in just a few decades after they destroy Jerusalem, they will be brought down, that judgment is coming for them. Really, two events are prophesied in Habakkuk. One event is that the Chaldeans will come and take Judah. That happens in 587 BC. They'll take people captive. But what the book also speaks of is their judgment. That's what we're looking at today. And at least humanly speaking, on the earthly plane, that will take place in 539 BC when Cyrus is raised up and the Babylonians are brought, the Chaldeans are brought down. The point of all this is that judgment for the sinner is coming. Judgment for the sinner is fixed. And while there is injustice rampant in the world, and in Habakkuk's day it was the Chaldeans that were meeting out injustice, while injustice is rampant, there is coming a day of justice. There's coming a day when all things will be made right by the God of the universe. And this chapter, which seems so distant about a bunch of people we don't even know anything about, using poetic language that at points it's a little hard to even understand, we're going to see here. But we're going to see that ultimately it's a message that points us to say judgment is coming. Don't be moved by what you see right now. Don't look at who's on top now. Don't look at who is winning now. Not unlike your NC to a bracket. It ain't over yet. That's what I'm hoping on open for. It ain't over yet. Don't judge, don't celebrate too early, Chaldeans, or anyone else, because judgment is coming. And God points this out to the Chaldeans with five woes. And if you're not reading the Bible, it's not W-H-O-A, like woe, it's W-O-E, a very different kind of woe. W-O-E, woe, is an expression of grief. And what God does here is he gives five woes to the Chaldeans. But as we read about it, let's don't distance ourselves too far from them. Clearly, they're doing things that we're not doing, um, murdering people. But they are also doing things that, well, at least in seed form, resides in every one of our hearts. And uh, so there is something to be for us to listen to. Uh, aware of our own hearts as we read about the Chaldeans. So there's five woes. We're going to go one at a time. Here's the first one, beginning in verse 6. This is God's word. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, uh, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. This is sort of a judgment against greed. They have heaped up, verse 6, they have heaped up what is not their own. They've taken, they've wanted these nations, they've wanted what they have, and they've taken it for themselves. It's the same thing 
that, uh, uh, that, that what God says here is the same thing that he says back in chapter 1 in verse 6 as well. 1-6 he says, For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march throughout the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings not their own. There is this lust for more. There is this greed to take what doesn't belong to them. And so God is speaking a woe over them, an expression of grief, grief to those who act in this way. They have a hunger for power and a hunger for expansion. I mean, if you could, if you could define sort of the cry, the, sort of the mission statement of the Chaldeans, it would be more. We want more power, more goods, more peoples, more land, more cities. We see they have extorted others, loading up pledges. They've taken from others at times. They've taken from others and said, you owe us. That's what it says in verse 6. You've loaded yourself with pledges. You owe me. It's, it's taking a pledge. It's extorting someone. It's shaking someone down in modern language uh, so that they now have all these debtors. We've taken and now you owe us. But there's coming a sudden judgment against them. God says your debtors are going to, well, they're going to rise up. Verse 7, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? So you have made them a victim, but actually you're going to become a victim. They're going to become the victors in this exchange. You'll be taken over because of your actions. Verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. The roles will be reversed, and suddenly your debtors will plunder you. The Chaldeans, the thing about the Chaldeans as you read, now I'm, if you're just jumping in here, your first Sunday, you, you wouldn't have this background. But when we read through ch- chapter 1, we just saw that there is this this strong uh, sense of self-assurance among the Chaldeans as they just go taking, they're compared to a fisherman who just takes a net and just scoops up fish. They're doing that with nations. And there's this sense that you read and you go kind of like the Chaldeans think they are bulletproof, gathering up nation after nation. Let that be a warning to us. They think they are bulletproof in their own power, and that surely no one could ever affect them. And as their power increases, they want more and more. And, and, and there is this sense that they're never satisfied, they're never great enough, they're never powerful enough. Verse 5, we didn't read it, but just before in verse 5, he says that his greed is as wide as Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. They, are, they want more. They never have enough. And that's the same like death. It's, it's, it, it, the, the metaphor is that death is never satisfied. There's not a moment when it's like, okay, death is full, so no one else is going to die because death has had all that he can take. Sheol, the place of the dead, is full. You'll have to take a number and wait. Nobody can die because we've had our full. He's saying, no, there's always death. It's as if death is greedy and never full, and that's exactly the way that sin works. That's the way that greed works. Never enough. Never enough. 
And also, it never warns of the consequences. Sin and greed in particular never warns of coming consequences. Anytime we're tempted to sin, there's never this loud voice from sin saying, consequences are coming. The role will be reversed. The victim will be the victor. The, 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 uh, the, the, the first will become last, and the last will become first. When judgment is spoken of also in Scripture, it often speaks, now in this case, he's talking about like an earthly judgment from God, but it's often spoken of in the same way it is here, sudden and role-reversing. It happens very quickly. They will, will your debtors not suddenly arise? It happens quickly, and it is almost always talked about as a role-reversal. You see this like with the poor and the rich in the ministry of Jesus, the poor man in Lazarus, for instance. But there's always this, this role reversal that happens, and this suddenly, it's a sobering thing to think about, that sin does not go unpunished. And those who stand on their own apart from Christ will pay for their own sins. Secondly, judgment against injustice. So there's a woe against greed and there's a woe against injustice. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Again, he's talking about the Chaldeans. The word house, woe to him who gets evil for his house. House can mean dynasty, uh, perhaps not literally a you know, three-bedroom house like we think of or something, but a dynasty. The Chaldean dynasty is guilty of evil gain. And he, they set their, again, this is all uh, prophetic, metaphorical language. They set their nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. So they've taken advantage of weaker people. They've treated them unjustly, and they've gotten their gain by evil means, it says. So they need to hide themselves so that they will be safe from those that they have oppressed. And so what do they do? Well, they sort of separate themselves in this case. They sort of repair to their their nest, which is way up high, out of the reach of the people. You've devised shame for your house. You've cut off the people, it says. So you are, you are seeking to get away. But here's what God says. You may try to get away and build your own house. Now we're talking about a structure. You may try to build your own house apart from the people you've cut off and apart from the people you've sinned against. But you know what? The stones in the wall are going to cry out in judgment. The, the beam from the woodwork will respond. What is he saying? He's saying, it's a poetic way of saying, you can't escape your actions. You can't harm people. You can't act unjustly and then separate yourself in your power and in your wealth or whatever it is and sort of separate yourself from those you've harmed. It's a strong warning. You think you've insulated yourself from consequences, Chaldeans, but the reality is that the very house you've built by evil will cry out against you. Verse 10, you have forfeited your life, is what he says to them. The word to the Chaldeans is you can't build a house high enough to secure yourself and protect yourself from the justice of God. That would be said to every earthly ruler. You cannot 
separate yourself from the justice of God. And that's true for us as well. We cannot be separated from the justice of God. We can't not think about it. We can't not just, just, there's no escape. Let's just live our lives and escape and whatever happens will happen. Sin is deceptive. Sin promises to everyone that you are the exception. Certainly the Chaldeans felt like the exception. And the, the point here of this woe is you're no exception. You may think you get away, but even your house will cry out against you. There's a strong word to everyone here that there's no escaping God's justice, but there, must, there will be um, a judgment. Number three, there's a judgment against violence. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood. This is what the Chaldeans did. And founds a city on iniquity. Iniquity is another word for sin. Behold, it is, behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the woes have moved now from greed to injustice and now to violence. And he's saying to the Chaldeans, you, you, you will not escape building a city off the blood of others uh, by war, by violence, by aggression. In chapter 1, there are these vivid pictures of the Chaldeans. They are, it says, God says, describes them as swift to devour. They come for violence. They take fortresses. And again, I've already referred to, they're like a fisherman that catches people and brings them up with a hook. The last verse of chapter 1 says, um, are they mercilessly killing nations forever? That's what Habakkuk says. Are you going to allow them to go on this world power forever? And of course, the answer is no. That's why he's assuring Habakkuk that yes, I'm raising them up. Yes, they are bad folk. Uh, but don't worry about the injustice. Justice is coming to them for what they are freely wanting to do. So God answers this question. They've built their towns on bloodshed, but they will, they've forfeited their life uh, and they will give account before the Lord of hosts. They have built towns on bloodshed and they are laboring, verse 13, for merely for fire. That is, what they are building will go up in smoke itself. What they are building will not last. The nations weary themselves for nothing. They're trying to accumulate something that is not lasting. It will not endure. They will be judged. They're self-sufficient. They're self-worshipping. But all that they gather and build for themselves will not last. Uh, Humanly speaking, there's a guy named Cyrus that's Uh, down the road, maybe in his mother's womb at this point. We don't know how old he is, but there's a guy, Cyrus, or I don't know, someone knows, but there's a guy, Cyrus, who is on his way, and everything that they are building will not endure. And so that, the, the very proof of that is when I make an offhanded comment at the intro to the sermon about, I'm sure you're thinking about the Chaldeans in your newsfeed. The reality is nobody's thinking about the Chaldeans. They were the big ones at the time, but no one is considering them. The, the very proof is that we don't know anything about them today. 
that they weren't enduring and lasting. Now contrast that with what he says about himself, what God says. Verse 14, they're building for something that'll be blown away for nothing. It'll go up in smoke. Verse 14, but the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk, don't worry about injustice. Don't worry about, are they going to get theirs? Don't worry about, how could I use evil people for good purposes to purify my own people? Don't worry about that. Know this, that there's coming a day when the entire earth will be flooded with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And that, that starts in some ways with the coming of Christ. Because in the coming of Christ, the message of good news goes out to all nations, all peoples, uh, it's not just the nation of Israel, it, it really is for all people, the good news that God is reconciling people to himself in Christ. He doesn't give us the detail of when this will be or exactly what it will be like for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this verse, he says, what we are assured of is, quote, the ultimate triumph of God. This is what Habakkuk needed. This is not some airy, futuristic, meaningless kind of, uh, you know, pie-in-the-sky promise. This is something you can trust, that there will be the ultimate triumph of God. We need that reminder. That is a biblical reminder throughout. These warning passages are also passages of comfort for the believer, passages of comfort for the person in Christ. Because there's coming a day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth. Paul says it this way, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. The person who denies him with his or her mouth today saying there is no God will one day confess that in fact there is a God and Jesus Christ is his name. Confessed on bended knee. Every atheist will acknowledge the rule of Jesus Christ someday. Every church-attending legalist who rests on their own works instead of the works of Christ will one day bow the knee and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Every idolater of every type will one day bow the knee and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Every universalist who says there is no ultimate judgment will one day stand before God's judgment and bow the knee, saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. Every relativist who says, well, truth is sort of relative, there's a scale of truth, or everyone who explains that, well, you just believe that because of the culture you grew up in. Everyone who gives every imaginable excuse of why Jesus is not Lord will one day bow before him, acknowledging, in fact, that he is Lord. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. The glory of the Lord is his presence, his, his, um, his blinding, holy uh, presence that emanates out from him. But the glory of the Lord, we could also say, is found in Jesus Christ, who is the, the very radiance of, of God himself, the very person of God. So what I'm saying here, this is not to lead us to gloat over the demise of the Chaldeans or the demise of anyone else that has challenged God, ignores God, persecutes the church. We don't, we don't gloat over that. Uh, we pray for people that don't know. This should break our hearts. This kind of passage 
which if I'm just picking, you know, like, what do I feel like talking about today? And you just show up for church for what you feel like hearing. <clears throat> three life hacks that'll meet your needs and get you on your way till next Sunday, that sort of thing. We never get to this passage, but we will be, we will be the poorer for it because this kind of passage is an eye-opening passage about the glory of God over all nations and all peoples, about the soon coming judgment that we will all face before him. And it, it puts the fear of the Lord in us. It is sobering and it should lead us to pray for those outside of Christ, and to be active in seeking to love and to reach them. For everyone will bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord, even either as his friend or as his enemy, as one who is in him or one who is opposed to him. So this is the third judgment against the violence of the Chaldeans. The fourth judgment, the fourth of five, is against, well, it's kind of hard to say this one, but I'm just going to say leading others astray. I read someone who said that, leading others astray. It's sort of a picture of seduction, so it could be a judgment against seducing others or manipulating others or harming others or leading others astray. I think that's the easiest way to say it. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them." So the easiest way to understand what he's talking about here is he's using a metaphor of a cup that is given to someone else to drink. And so there's one cup, which would be a cup uh, which is leading his neighbors to drink and get them drunk. So it's a cup of wine or a cup of alcohol. And he's saying, uh, alcohol of some sort. So he's saying, okay, Chaldeans, you've been giving a cup to others. And what's your goal? You want to get them drunk and get them naked. So you want to seduce them, you want to take advantage of them. But the nakedness here is spoken of as shame. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. So you're trying in some way to degrade another. You're trying to lead them astray, you're trying to manipulate them, you're trying to degrade them, you're trying to shame them and to take advantage of them. So that's what you're trying to do. But you know what? There's another cup that's coming to you, and it won't be your glory. You think you're glorying in your power to take advantage of someone else, perhaps sexually in this context, but at least to shame someone, to, at least to expose someone. You, you think that's what's happening, but you know what? You're, you're going to be drinking yourself and showing your own circumcision, which means exactly what you think it means. You, you're going to be, in essence, getting drunk and shaming yourself. You're going to be shamed under a different cup, and it is the cup ultimately that comes from God who will pour out, uh, who, will, who will pass this cup. The cup in the Lord, of the Lord's right hand, verse 16, will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. So what you're trying to expose someone else, what you're going to find is going to happen, that the cup of the Lord is coming to you, you're going to be forced to drink that and you're going to be exposed. So what is the cup of the Lord? Well, throughout the Bible, the cup of the Lord is, is a reference, it's a picture of God's wrath. 
So for instance, Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So God's got a cup. All the wicked will drink the whole thing. It is the judgment of God. It is the wrath of God. Jesus uses the same metaphor. In the garden, he says, Lord, if there's any way that this cup may pass from me, what cup is he talking about? He's talking about, Lord, if there's any way that I can avoid taking your wrath, receiving your wrath, drinking the judgment that will come in the cross, if there's any way to avoid me taking the judgment, but ultimately let your will be done. This is a powerful picture. Chaldeans, you think that you're passing a cup to someone on to someone else to take advantage, to expose them, to shame them. I'm telling you, there's a cup coming to you that will expose you, that will reveal your shame, that is the, the, the wrath of God that is coming upon you. And that is true for everyone. Everyone will either drink the cup themselves, this is figuratively, it's a metaphor, everyone will drink the cup themselves of God's wrath, or they will stand with Christ to drink the cup in their place. The only safe place for the coming judgment of God is to be in Christ. I read a memorable story. It changes the picture from wine and cups, uh, but, but it, still, it still makes the point in a memorable way. It was a memorable way for me. I read this story. I uh, came across this this week. I think I'd seen it before, but I came across this week this story, and this, this person's writing. It says, one of the first gospel illustrations that ever made an impression on me And my young heart was a simple story which I heard a preacher tell when I was less than nine years old. It was a story of pioneers, and they were making their way across one of the central states to a distant place that had been opened up for homesteading. They traveled in covered wagons drawn by oxen, and progress was necessarily slow. One day, they were horrified to note a long line of smoke in the west stretching for miles across the prairie. And soon it was evident that the dried grass was burning fiercely and coming toward them rapidly. They had crossed a river the day before, but it would be impossible to go back to the river before the flames would be upon them. One man only seemed to have understanding as to what should be done. He gave the command to set fire to the grass behind them. And then when a space was burned over, the whole company moved back and stood upon the burned over ground. As the flames roared on toward them from the west, a little girl cried out in terror, are you sure that we shall not all be burned up? The leader replied, my child, The flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing for where the fire has been. Standing where the fire has been. And he concludes by saying, the fires of God's judgment burn themselves out on Christ. And all who are in Christ are safe forever. For they are now standing where the fire has been. It's a different picture, but a memorable one that the safe place to be is where the fire is already burned. You're untouched there. 
The safe place to be is with Christ who drank the cup of God's wrath so that we would never taste the judgment of God if we believe in him. That we are eternally protected and loved and in his presence forever because Jesus paid, the innocent one paid for the guilty, you and for me, paid for us. He's judging the Chaldeans for what they have done and all will be judged All will taste the cup except for those who are in Christ. The last judgment is judgment against idolatry. What profit, verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. Meaning you've made it. You've made it. Here's the woe against the root of all other sins. And this is where perhaps we can, every one of us in the room, identify most closely with the Chaldeans and what God says to them. He says, woe to those who trust what they make rather than trusting God. Woe to those who trust in a substitute for the living God. They have sought from their idols what only God could provide. He said, you have made something out of wood and said, awake. You've, you've made a stone. You've carved an idol and said, arise. You want, what do they want? They want guidance. They want revelation. They want security. They want help out of a lifeless thing. You've made this thing and trusted that it would deliver. It would help you. You've made something from your own hands and you think that this God substitute will make life work. That's idolatry. It is trusting in a God substitute to make life work, to make life good. And while probably no one in the room, or likely very few, have carved an image and bowed down and trusted that image for power, while we may not have done that, we certainly know what it is to have a God substitute that tells us, with this life will work, with this I am safe, with this I am good. Money, anybody? Financial security? How easy it is to trust the security of finances so that we're protected, so that we're safe, so that we're good. Oh, it's way more sophisticated to trust a 401k than to trust a statue that I carved out of wood. It's way more sophisticated, but it's no less a God substitute. It's no less defining my well-being. How about the approval of others? the approval of a person, or the approval of a group of people, the approval of your boss. How many of us are willing to do whatever it takes and to win the approval of someone's favor? And when their favor, when they're smiling upon us, we feel good and secure. And when they criticize or they frown on us, we feel crushed. We live for their approval. We live for the affirmation of others. We live for their their love, as opposed to the God, God Almighty, the approval of God in Christ. We trust our abilities. We may not trust the statue, but we trust our wisdom, our knowledge, our relationships, our connection, our ability to get us out of a circumstance. 
we trust our health. When things go bad, we, in any area of life, we have a thousand escapes that we run to. What are we saying when we medicate our pain? What are we saying when we escape our pain with with lust or sexual pleasure of some sort? What are we saying when we try to escape our pain with leisure or just, just tuning out or whatever it may be, a thousand different kinds of escapes? We're saying, God, you're not enough. I need something else. We can all relate to what it is to be an idolater. There's no one who hasn't created a God substitute. There are, there are no non-idolaters but Jesus. And so the last point's kind of the, well, it's kind of the gotcha. When you read through the Chaldeans, you could go, yeah, I'm not building cities on blood. I'm pretty good on that one. You kind of go through the sin list. I'm not building cities on blood. Yeah, I, I'm not going in and shaking down whole towns and saying, you owe me and, you know, and separating myself so that there's not, they don't rise up against and attack me up in my nest. Okay, most of us are not. They're, we could identify with greed. We could identify with being aggressive and getting what we want. We could identify in seed-like form maybe with some of the actions. But when it comes to trusting in something else, besides God, our own creation instead of the creator. When when it comes to putting trust in any part of the creation, any person or anything in the creation instead of the creator, oh, we are all, all guilty. We all need a savior. Jesus who died for idolaters. Jesus who gave his life for those who substitute for God. Those are the five woes say judgment is coming and the safe place is in Christ. There's forgiveness and mercy in him. The last verse, this is the last thing God says directly to Habakkuk in the book. We've got another chapter to go, but this is the last thing he says. Verse 20, but the Lord, Yahweh, self-existent one, the I am, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. They're looking at idols, but in contrast, the true God is ruling over the universe. He has now explained his ways to Habakkuk. He has told them the Chaldeans will fall. He leaves Habakkuk with a picture of his rule, his sovereignty, his might, his power, his coming justice, his righteousness, and basically says, Habakkuk, I love you. We've had a great dialogue. It's now time for everybody to shut up. Feel free to text your questions in, but, but please, really, I mean, that's not a joke. Please do. But it, he's really saying, okay, I've got this, and Habakkuk's got to be blown away to hear this work of God. Keith Thomas, in his commentary on Habakkuk, writes, God's command for silence in Habakkuk 2, verse 20, is a call for his people to recognize his power, to vindicate the righteous, and judge the wicked. Silence provides the space for the faithful to embrace God's divine verdict. There is a time just to be silent before God. There is a time. There's a time to stop questioning. Now, I've spent the whole book saying questions are appropriate. Ask your questions. Cry out to God with your questions. I've, I've, the whole book, I've said that. 
But there is a time when God has revealed himself with such clarity. There is a time to stop questioning, to stop talking. There's a time to stop writing, stop tweeting, stop blogging, stop posting. There's a time just to be silent before God and say, you are the almighty just one of the universe. And my voice doesn't need to join the fray of all the noise. There's a time where we just trust God who is working in ways. What did he say to Habakkuk? Working in ways that he cannot see and cannot understand. God is working in ways we cannot see and cannot understand. And so there's a time just to be silent. Trusting that he will judge sinners. Trusting that he will make all things right. Trusting that one day he will fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Trusting that he will make all things new. And one day we will acknowledge that through, uh, through bowing our knee and confessing Jesus as Lord. And there's a time to be silent with confident waiting on God to mete out justice. Doesn't mean we're, please hear what I'm saying, this is one section of the book. Doesn't mean we never question, doesn't mean we're never to be uh, an activist towards any cause doesn't mean we're never to take action doesn't mean we're to be passive in all circumstances I'm not saying that but there is a time when we have prayed and we have said our peace and we've sought the scripture and we have sought counsel and we have wrestled with how can this be there is a time when ultimately we just bow before the Lord and say we're confidently waiting on you to fulfill your purposes that's what verse 20 is about I think this is especially powerful for those of us in the room <clears throat> if you feel that you are someone who has been wronged in some profound way. Everybody's been wronged, but you've been wronged in some profound way that sticks with you today. This is perhaps one of the most comforting verses in the Bible. No one may be able to answer why what happened to you happened. There may not be satisfying justice in this life for that circumstance. That's very possible. Some of you are in a situation right now where you, you just re, you, you're being harmed or you remember being harmed in some way. And, and there are no easy answers. No one, can, no one can satisfy your cry for that. But there is a truth that God is in his holy temple and he will bring justice to all. And you can, by his grace, in the quiet, rest confidently, not in anyone else's justice, not in human justice, but in divine justice. I think it's appropriate for us to close this way. We are going to sing, but if we could stand together, I, I want to close with a moment of silence. And as we do, this sort of a pregnant pause, if you will, uh, I think it would be good for us to um, just cast our, you close your eyes if that would help you to not be distracted, but just cast any lingering weight that's upon you today, to cast that on the Lord mentally, just confident in Him that He will make all things right, that He will make all things good, that He will restore all that has been lost and that he will bring justice and make all things right in his time. I think as an act of worship, this doesn't happen in worship services very often. We've got to keep it moving. 
I think it'd be appropriate to have a moment just of silence before the Lord acknowledging this and pouring out your, in your mind, pouring out to him anything uh, that you want to commit to him. Let's pause. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org. 